Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Hello and welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole. There's been a huge rise in the number of fraud cases since the beginning of the pandemic, and the figures show no signs of slowing down. As Europe battles the scandemic, this week we're asking, who are the fraudsters? And why are so few being caught? From conman to consultant, meet the man using his dark past to prevent victims of the future. Why a global effort is needed to tackle the growing fraud portfolio, and for love or money, I'll be finding out the tactics and phrases used by the love fraudsters. Fraud is a billion dollar crime equating to more than 6% of global GDP. And those numbers have been going up since the COVID-19 pandemic began, as much as by 30% in some parts of Europe. Criminals have been using the global health crisis as a way of targeting people by impersonating health authorities and even offering fake vaccine certificates. With most financial transactions now conducted online rather than face-to-face, -face, fraudsters are increasingly using ever-sophisticated methods of stealing money. The most common are through fake websites, phishing emails and phone calls from scammers masquerading as legitimate organisations, where people are tricked into giving over their personal financial details. In the UK, even pet owners are being warned to be careful buying online. New figures show more than $3.5 million has been stolen through fake pet adverts. Banks and governments have launched anti-fraud campaigns as tech-related crimes have surged. Bank customers are constantly being asked to perform an increasing number of security checks in order to access their own accounts. Nevertheless, in the UK, a record $480 million was lost in the first six months of this year to scammers, but less than half has so far been refunded. There are questions too about the increasing use of algorithms and how effective they are in the fight against fraud. Earlier this year, the Dutch government resigned over a scandal involving 26,000 families who were falsely accused of child benefit fraud. They'd been targeted by an algorithm. But fraud is still a huge issue in the offline world as well. According to data from the European Union, more than 4 billion euros has gone missing from its budget. At least 1,700 reports of fraud from around the block are currently being investigated. But what can companies do to reduce the risk of being deceived? Well, many turn to my next guest, Tony Sales. Tony is a former convicted fraudster himself, who's now turned his life around and works with a group called We Fight Fraud to help companies protect themselves and their customers from large-scale fraud. Tony, I have to ask you, first of all, uh, about your past as a fraudster. Why did you get involved and how did you turn your life around? I, I mean, it happened very young to me. Um, my mum and dad had both left by the time, you know, I was a couple of days old. I was given to my nan to look after. So my grandmother didn't really have much money. I was living in uh, poverty. I didn't have the, you know, the greatest trainers like all the other kids had that were around me. I wanted to be like them and I suppose it was ego that drove me to commit crime and very quickly I started um, with going door-to-door -door sponsorship forms, uh, you know, one week it would be a sponsored run, a sponsored jump, a sponsored swim, a sponsored bounce, a sponsored whatever it would be to take that person's money but it wasn't upscalable and 
before you know it, I was a 16 year old getting involved in high level credit card fraud um, and branching out, getting people to work for me within places. Um, and it just spiraled, you know, the, the criminal career just spiraled. With that kind of background, it is quite amazing that you turned your life around and uh, you, you are now part of We Fight Fraud. Tell me what you do for We Fight Fraud. So, you know, I'm, I'm one of the founding members of We Fight Fraud. We set it up to combat uh, the tsunami of fraud that is battering the UK um, and global companies everywhere, you know, and we all become victims of that. So it, we, we help companies understand what the risks they face. And then we train the staff to understand how not to become a risk to their company, you know, by just giving them the basic details. I mean, the problem is, yeah, is that we've convinced the world that a hack is something that place, takes place digitally, when in actual fact, 100% of all hacks have a human element within them. So we're either clicking a link, the hacker's creating the link, we're either letting someone into the building that shouldn't be in there that can then plug into the, the servers that we have. We've guarded information. Uh, we're saying stuff on the phone that we shouldn't be saying. Staff are giving information away when they're having their lunch that they shouldn't be saying. These are all things that we highlight because we're able to show from a criminal aspect of how malicious, attacked, uh, malicious attackers would uh, attack someone. And how does your background in crime, because you were thinking as a criminal for many years, help you anticipate what the criminals, the fraudsters are going to do? No one's born bad, right? So all of that learning that you, you take on when you're going through um, a bad upbringing, most criminals have been through that same bad upbringing. So all of the opportunities that you cease and, uh, and all of the risks that you understand uh, play into the same for all of us. So, you know, most crime is opportunist crime, right? It just happens there in the moment. Uh, there was a, 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 a window open. There was a, we left our door open for five minutes with burglaries, you know. Uh, we Our car was parked in a dark alley and the window got smashed. These are all opportunities that criminals it, exactly. seize upon. And now we see this happening everywhere. And, but we just have an insight because of the stuff, the need, the hunger. You know, most people... I mean, I never actually had any fast food as a child. Um, there wasn't really much in the fridge. So if you want to get to those other things, you have to steal them or get the money from stealing to buy them. The, the, you know, it well, was just that sort of easy for us. Going back to the, my previous question, how much of this is run by organized crime gangs? Well, uh, most of it, you know, because you can't, you, there's no way on earth you could pull off a hack uh, of that way unless you're in some form of crime gang. Now, that could mean just three people in a gang committing crime. They're organized. They, they understand what their objectives are and they carry them out to the maximum to achieve their goals. Uh, and those groups are everywhere. Um, there's also foreign state hackers attacking uh, all countries um, around the world as well. And that's also something that we have to deal with. What kinds of fraud do you come across most often? So there's all different types. I mean, at the moment, yeah, the biggest threat at the moment is phishing and ransomware. So I can log in to your bank account, Stephen, because of the information that I've bought. Unfortunately, you would have lost your data online. It gives me access to your bank account. But what I can't do 
is transfer your funds. Now, because to do that, I need to obtain what's called an OTP, a one-time passcode. Now, that is sent to your phone when you go onto your bank and you try to transfer your money. So I have to now involve a human element within that. I know your phone number. I know all of your details because I've got your logins to your bank. And we've prov- when you get stuff like that online, when you buy it out of these hacks, it comes with your date of birth, your phone number, all of this information, right? So I can just simply walk into a phone store, any phone store, and with the correct ID that I can have made to look exactly how it should, by the way, um, I can take control of your cell phone, okay? Once I've got control of your cell phone, I can then go back online with the information that I've got, type in that I'm going to transfer your funds, and send the money directly because I'll have the OTP and you will be none the wiser. And that's the massive problem that we have. What advice do you give companies and what are they doing to stop this? Yeah, I mean, I, I said it the other day, you know, there's a, there's a government panel that's actually, they're talking, you know, and it's a great thing that the government want to bring this task force and make them uh, get together and all come together, but they're all reactive. They don't understand being proactive, whether they're police companies, they're only being advised by the companies that advise them. And those companies that advise them don't have the real insights needed to give them the skills needed to do what they need to do. And it's a massive problem. Part of fraud is all about them, fear tactics. And like you said at the beginning, the 18 months um, that we've been during COVID, you know, most people all are already in a state of panic. Tony Sales, many thanks to you for joining us here on the agenda. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks. Well, to discuss all that in more detail, joining me now is Professor Mark Button. And Mark is Director of Centre for Counter-Fraud Studies at Portsmouth University. Um, Mark, fraud is such a huge uh, subject. Uh, is it possible to break it down and roughly give us an idea of the different types of fraud? Yes, it is. Um, So first of all, we could look at the frauds which target us as individuals. Um, Many people would call these scams um, or mass marketing type frauds, and they cover the the phishing type emails we receive that seek to try and get our personal information and our banking information through to romance scams and and fake shopping websites that many people go to, to to buy things which don't exist. So there are a huge number of those individual type frauds. Um, secondly, you've got a wide range of frauds that happen against organisations, often uh, perpetrated by the, the staff um, through expense frauds, procurement frauds, those types of things, but also external bodies, um, organised crime groups, um, you know, professional fraudsters targeting those types of companies um, through to the, the, the final part of the, the equation, which would be the sort of public sector uh, and the many different types of frauds that the public sector organisations experience from tax fraud, social security fraud, through to some of the same frauds that, that companies experience. Um, so broadly, that's how I would divide the, the, the main types of fraud. So many types and obviously so expensive and so dangerous. How much money do you estimate is lost every year to fraudsters uh, and to the people running these scams? Well, we've done some research in the past which has sought to estimate the scale of fraud in the UK. Um, And the last time we did this, which was three or four years ago, 
um, it was 190 billion pounds. Um, you know, the significant sums of money. That 190 billion pounds. Yes. 190 billion pounds. And that's made up of the government, uh, private sector organisations, and of course, individuals. So how, I suppose the $64 billion question, how, how can people avoid being uh, a victim of fraud? Um, this is a, a very sort of complex thing to consider, but I, I would start with the, the, the very first and most important thing is to be suspicious. Um, particularly in relation to any unsolicited contact you receive from um, individuals or people claiming to work in for um, organisations and banks. Um, fraudsters thrive on impersonation um, through emails, through phoning you up and telling you who they are, um, and often trick people into doing things they wouldn't otherwise do. So being suspicious and taking your time to consider those types of things, I think, is the the primary defence for, for anyone. Um, but obviously, um, you know, some forces are very sophisticated. They, they get hold of your, your information through data leaks, you know, traded on the, the dark web. Um, and there's not a lot you can do about that other than, you know, if you do hear of data leaks and things like that, to regularly change passwords and, you know, associated PIN numbers, etc. So that if you are hit by a third-party type attack, um, you're in a kind of stronger position. What about unreported fraud, Mark? Do you think there's a lot of that because people are basically too embarrassed to <clears throat> say that they have been the victim? Yeah, I think there's a huge um, um, amount of unreported fraud. Um, if we look at the crime survey statistics, which are the most accurate, they suggest around about 5 million people being a victim of a computer misuse-related offence or a fraud-related offence. And yet there's, uh, the numbers actually reported and recorded are in the, only the hundreds of thousands. So lots of people don't report frauds. Embarrassment is, uh, I think, a, a key thing. Lots of people are, are very you know, reluctant to go to the police and reveal that you know, they've been deceived. You know, High-powered individuals, people... Um, in you know, very professional positions, having to reveal that they've lost money in an investment fraud is, is quite embarrassing for them. What are the fastest growing areas of fraud? Well, in recent months, there's been a huge problem with text-based um, frauds, um, where fraudsters have been able to farm huge numbers of text messages uh, and send those to large numbers of individuals. We've also seen in the, during the pandemic um, pet scams. Lots of people have been keen to get a pet, give them company, um, and fraudsters have set up false websites selling pets uh, with people paying money for, for pets that they, they never receive. Um, so these are just some of the, the many emerging different types of frauds that that are regularly um, hitting our screens, on our, um, either for our web, uh, laptops or our, our mobile phones. So uh, we know we have Interpol and we have Europol. These days, considering the extent uh, of the high level of crime of fraud, should we have fraud poll? Um, well, I think there is a case for that. Um, if we were starting from scratch, and we had to design a system to deal with the problem of fraud, 
we would create an international body because of the uh, the amount of fraud that cuts across borders. And an international body um, would perhaps provide the focus. Um, and Interpol um, do do some work, and as do, do Europol, but like many policing organisations at a national level, their focus is invariably upon the, the kind of higher rated crimes that they consider, things like terrorism, drug dealing, those types of things. So fraud often falls down their list of priorities. And having an international body purely dedicated to fraud um, deals with that issue. So I think um, an international body would be very welcome, but unfortunately a very difficult thing to achieve. Professor Mark Button, many thanks to you for joining us here on the agenda. Thank you. Before the break, we learnt about the various types of fraud, but one in particular has got everyone talking. When the pandemic hit, fraudsters jumped at the opportunity of making money from lockdown loneliness, causing a 20% rise in related bank transfers. So what are the warning signs that we should be looking out for? Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Elizabeth Carter, and she is a forensic linguist and professor of criminology at Kingston University. Elizabeth, can you summarise uh, uh, what is romance fraud? Yes, romance fraud is where somebody poses as a legitimate love interest, usually on online dating websites, uh, drawing in their victims by pretending to be legitimate, looking for love. And then when they do start develop a, to develop a relationship over time, then that's when they start to exploit them. Uh, the fraudsters exploit the, the romance, the love, the developing bond they have with the person they think is legitimate, um, and then eventually they do ask for money. What sort of tactics do the fraudsters use? They use all sorts of ranges of, of tactics. And one of the main things they do is to try and instill a sense of trust um, in, in the person who they're talking to. So they reveal little bits about themselves. Of course, all of this is, is entirely made up, but little bits of information about themselves, trying to replicate or mirror the victim's experiences. So they might say, oh, you know, I've got children, or I've got pets. They also say things that make them look a bit vulnerable as well. So we have this idea generally that fraudsters are going to be aggressive, trying to get your money from you. But actually romance fraudsters do something very different. They show that they're vulnerable. Sometimes they might even say that they've been a victim of fraud themselves in order to try and draw a protective response from the victim. And of course, if you're a victim of this crime and there's somebody talking to you and they're looking vulnerable, you'd never question their authenticity. It would be cruel almost. So they do lots of things, particularly making themselves feel vulnerable. Something else they do is try and get you off that media site, social media site, online dating site as quickly as possible. This is so they, they can inhabit your phone, where your friends and your family inhabit as well. So they piggyback on that credibility and trustworthiness in that way too. I mean, the victims are often portrayed as a little bit foolish, a, a bit romance-struck. Is that fair? No, absolutely not. And this is one of these pervasive negative narratives around romance fraud. And it comes really because people don't have a true understanding of what romance fraud is. The victims don't realise what's going on. So they're making what's seen as good decisions, reasonable, rational decisions, but in a completely distorted reality. And it's that message we need to get across to the public, that these people are not being foolish. Um, and in fact, this crime is, is a double crime, really, because there's the financial harm that we're all very aware of, aware of, 
But the other harm here is the deep psychological harm, which is born from the fact that somebody who has defrauded you using your very own trust and your very own vulnerability against you. You heard me say at the beginning uh, about the exponential rise uh, in the number of these crimes, but I wonder how many of the crimes of romance fraud goes unreported because the victims are just too embarrassed uh, to report it to the police. Absolutely. This is a very big problem. It's estimated that only 5 to 10% of victims of this crime report it to the authorities. And there's a number of reasons for this, uh, one of which is the shame and embarrassment surrounding it. Um, and this is due to these negative narratives around, you know, how could you be so silly? And people feel, oh, I should have known. But like I say, it's the grooming behind it that's caused you to be a victim of this crime. It's the criminal themselves and not the victim. And of course, the more people that report this type of fraud, the better picture we get of how many people are victims of this fraud. But also what it looks like, uh, a better understanding of who the perpetrators are as well. Well, um, that's so what I'd like to know. I'd, I'd like to know a little more about the criminal, because this is a long-term con normally, isn't it? So uh, it, does that mean the criminal, the con man, the fraudster, he is a, a, a sociopath to be able to keep up a fraud for such a length of time? It's an interesting thing, really, because we often think it's just one person, but it's most likely to be part of an organised criminal network. Oh, so you'll have, it's almost an, an industry in itself, um, you know, with their own conferences and, and um, um, information books on how, how to best defraud people. It's, it's a business in itself, a criminal enterprise. Um, of course, you do get the odd chance they're online trying to defraud someone just as a sole person, but very often it's part of a larger network. So you'll get essentially call centres of people, and you'll have five or six, maybe more, uh, fraudsters who are taking on lots of different victims. And it's quite interesting in the research that I do that uses data conversations between victims and fraudsters, um, I find that you can see where it goes wrong. So sometimes you see victims saying, well, you said that yesterday, the very same thing. And this is where we start to understand that they're working from a script, this particular fraudster, and they're handing uh, over right. one to the other. I've watched recently the Tinder Swindlers. I've also watched the Puppet Master. I mean, these are very disturbing programs and the victims have been hit very hard, although the one woman did get her, her own back, I'm very glad to say. But it, it is, is this bringing to the fore into the public domain what is normally a very delicate and private subject? Absolutely. We don't hear very much about romance fraud. We hear about other types of frauds in the paper and the news, but romance fraud is very much hidden. And this adds these negative narratives, something that shouldn't be talked about. And yes, these, these two Netflix series are incredibly powerful in bringing this type of crime to the fore. Although, of course, it's the most extreme cases because it's infotainment, it's newsworthy, it's exciting. Um, and we also have to be a bit careful as well because what's shown is the most interesting parts of it. So with the Tinder Swindler, for example, there's a lot made about how rich the perpetrator was and how, how the victims were attracted to, to his wealth. And there's no problem with that, you know. But that's not what led them to be defrauded. What led them to be defrauded was a bit more hidden in the Tinder Swindler in particular. It's the grooming behind it, the, the romance, the, the real relationship that was going on there for the victims you know, at, at least it was a very real relationship. You know, one of them was in a relationship for 14 months with this man. Um, so it's important to take it a little bit with a pinch of salt because it is still entertainment. 
Yes, I, I understand that. What, what should people be looking for love, looking for romance, especially with Valentine's Day? Um, sh what are the warning signs they should look out for? There are some. There are some warning signs. I also want to caveat this, that this with not all of these will be present uh, and do try and trust your intuition as well. Uh, one of them is if somebody starts declaring their love very early on, very passionately, very early on. That, that can be a bit of a warning sign. Um, uh, talk, talking about, you know, the future in, in a way that you wouldn't expect, you know, marriage, children and so on, in a way that you wouldn't expect very early on in the relationship. Trying to move somebody away from the protections of social media or online dating services and onto um, messaging services on your phone, that's also a, a warning sign. Dr. Elizabeth Carter, many thanks indeed for joining us on the agenda. A pleasure. Coming up on a future agenda. Is the luxury market ready for a post-pandemic makeover? And how much would you pay for a virtual handbag? But for now, from me, Stephen Cole, and all the agenda team here in London, it's goodbye. <laughs>